Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Prince Podcast here on Podcast Juice. My name is Michael Dean, and joining me today, we've got a special guest. Uh, wow, all the way from Australia, we have Mary Lou Badu. How are you doing, Mary Lou? Yeah, hi. That's How say, are you? I'm good. Did I say your last name correctly? Is it Badu? Uh, you were very close. It's actually Badu. Badu. Uh, but but it, you did better than most. Well, I am known to butcher a name, so that's sort of my wheelbarrow. Okay. But okay, we got it. So uh, this is this is great because uh, first of all, let me geek out a little bit because I've seen your name throughout the years, uh, particularly on the Warner Brothers and some of the early Prince stuff. Uh, and I'm uh, it's interesting as we're going to talk about this because I have been a fan of a lot of uh, the music that come came through uh, Warner Brothers. Uh, back in the days that I hopefully we can talk about as well. But for those who don't know, Mary Lou uh, was a vice president over at Warner Brothers Records, particularly uh, working with the black music department. Uh, and I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that was from like 1976 all the way to 2002. Is that right? Uh, 2001. Yeah. 2001. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, the last five years I was actually in the jazz department, but, uh, yeah, yeah, you got it correct. Wow. So you've seen, and of course, this is the Prince podcast, so we definitely will talk about that, but you have been there for uh, a lot of things came out of Warner Brothers back then. Uh, I'm also a huge hip hop fan, rap. Okay. So I would imagine you, uh, in some way must have worked with, uh, Mr. Ice-T himself, uh, there. His I, I worked with Ice quite a bit. Um, just uh, he is someone who, who again, um, multi-layered, uh, very, very interesting cat, very smart, um, and very talented. Yes, yes. Uh, again, I'm I'm gonna just sort of reminisce over my youth, but there was a uh, classic albums that we used to just play over and over. Uh, of course, his first one was uh, Ryan Pays. Uh, we, we we wore that out. The Power album uh, by mm. Ice T. Mm. Uh, those those are classics to me. And then of course you guys also had um, uh, Cold Chillin' records yes, we did. came through there. And and that for me, my favorite rapper of all time is Big Daddy Kane. So you guys, yeah. oh yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. Oh yeah, very very. And again, another very talented. I mean, we were blessed as a company. Um, and I can't speak to what the company is now, but but uh, through those many years I was there, we were blessed um, just because of, of how the company did business. Um, it, it The company all the way up to Time Warner, which at the time was run by Steve Ross, he had a belief in what's called horizontal management as opposed to vertical management. Very briefly, horizontal management is, management is where you trust the people below you and, and they're allowed to grow and do things, whereas vertical management, come at the top, there's somebody saying, this is what I want, and this is how it's going to be. Um, and so Mo Austin, who was the chairman at Warner's all the years I was, or virtually all the years I was there, very much had the same belief. And he allowed his department heads, the departmental heads allowed the people who worked for them all to grow and, and, and be creative. And so it was that very creative environment, not only for the executives, but of course for artists. And it became the go-to place for artists. Uh, everyone knew that, that that was sort of the place to get to. And 
because of all of that and some really brilliant A&R people, uh, the people who actually signed the acts, um, we, we had absolutely an amazing roster in, in black music. I mean, it, you know, you can't touch that. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and in that, you know, speaking of nothing else from that, uh, again, like I said, just stellar, some, some of the early uh, you know, hip-hop stuff. I mean, you had, like I said, Ice-T was really representing the West Coast. And then, you know, uh, Cold Chillin', Marley yeah. Mall, and, and, and all of that with Big Daddy Kane coming from the East Coast. I and mean, you guys really had a nice uh, grip on things. And, and there was something I always wanted to ask. And again, I'm asking as a fan, and I just, because I always used to go to record stores and we would pay attention to the liner notes and everything that was on there. Can you give us just a, a quick sort of understanding of what the, uh, I think it was called WE, was it W-E-A distribution or something Wea. like that? WE. Yep. Can you break that down a little bit for us and what that what that was? Uh, oh, how it worked? Okay, WE um, is the distribution arm for Warner Brothers, Atlantic, and Electra Records, and that's where the W-E-A comes from, okay? Right. So, uh, again, it's, it's sort of the fourth cog in the wheel of the record side of, of uh, Warner Brothers or Time Warner, I should say. And so they were in charge with distribution. So it was everything from sales to they had some, uh, they had merch people in all the cities that would go into the stores and the displays that you would see would have been put up by those people. Um, they, they were out there in the pulse of the city selling merchandising. They would work very closely with us, um, uh, there were a couple of people that, at the WEA uh, label, not label, uh, distribution, uh, or in the earlier years, there was a gentleman by the name of Oscar Fields who later came over to Warner Brothers, and then later on, a lady by the name of Ornetta Bar Barber, who was a little spitfire, and she had a team of people who were out there and feedback and, you know, working hard, and and, and they, they just really did a job of getting into all the neighborhood shop, you know, all, all the kinds of places that don't really exist anymore because obviously the whole business has changed dramatically. Uh, but they, uh, we was our, our those are the go-to people, you know, without that distribution arm and the people there and their um, passion for the music, uh, we couldn't have gotten the kinds of, of uh, impact that we did have. Wow. Okay. And um, I got to mention, and we're, we're going to talk about this too, is you have a book coming out. Yes. Uh, that uh, is something I think all Prince fans need to check out. But the book is called Moments Remembering Prince. Mm. And uh, I had the opportunity to read this book, and I thank you for that. Uh, this, tell us in your words, what is this book about? What this book is about is is you know, my encounters, not only directly with Prince, but the, the, the incredible people around him. Um, I, it was not something I even contemplated doing until a friend, a very close friend at Warner Brothers kept pushing me saying that these stories needed to be told. And initially I started the book really as a cathartic exercise for myself. It wasn't going to do anything at all past that. And then it just sort of took on a momentum of its own. And I realized that I was in a unique position because the relationship, I didn't work for him. I worked with him. 
And so it's a viewpoint sort of from the record label, but the friendship that grew through all of the people at Paisley Park. And it's a way to, and again, I, I don't really use like to use this word, but it humanizes him. Uh, everyone knows this is, was a, a, an amazingly talented musician, singer, you know, you name it, a writer, all of it, producer. Um, but a lot of who he was as a person, it's coming out in little bits and pieces now, his work with charity and helping people and what have you, because he was he was adamant no one should know about that. And I really respected that in him because um, some celebrities seem to use uh, their charity work as ways to almost promote themselves. And he was, you know, you do not talk about it, or if you do, you know, you, you, uh, I won't have anything to do with you. I mean, he never said that, but you just knew it. Um, so it's, it's sort of, it's, it's just a collection of moments um, to, to sort of, you know, it's remembering things that happen, and some of which are very funny, because uh, he was, God, he was a funny person. Um, but it had to be a very small group of people in the room, and he had to know you. Um, before that showed, uh, but he was a prankster. Um, he cared about people. Um, he certainly did a lot of charity things. So um, I decided to to move ahead with it, uh, even though I had some qualms because there is, of course, that feeling everybody's out there now to take advantage and what have you. And, and uh, so it, it was with that thought, too, that I thought, well, is this the right thing to do? And I realized that the stories, I wanted to share the stories. Okay. That's all. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't want to take anything away from the books. So I will ask some things, but I want people to go back, to really go and read uh, from your, your memories and things in the book. But can you talk about, and you do talk about in the book, like just that, I was going to ask you what it was like to meet Prince, but maybe we want to save that. What I want to ask you is this, um, and this is interesting because we don't normally get the side of the record company or Warner Brothers in this case with Prince a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And what would it take? So Prince got, you know, he, you guys, he, Prince was signed to Warner Brothers. Now, was he originally signed? Was it a three album deal? Uh, initially or yeah, I've been asked that a couple of times and I honestly I can't say for absolute I think it was three maybe four but but uh, in that day and age you typically sign an artist for multiple uh, albums because you give them time to find their feet if you will uh, so okay. I, I would guess it was somewhere in that range I wasn't privy to the A&R or the contractual side of things okay and that, that is interesting, interesting that you said you give them time to sort of find their feet their footing and, and what they are going to be yep. with that in mind considering Prince's first couple releases you know the first two albums and then of course he comes in with Dirty Mind uh, can you talk about in terms of the differences of how the record companies worked back then to how they may work today because that sort of leeway or artist development to get to at least the third album, the way Prince was able to, or the fourth album, was there was there ever like pressure from the the I don't know if pressure is the word, but is there expectations from the label like you know each album has to you know sort of do better than the next, or is it like well this guy's let's let him find his way a little bit? I mean, how did that work back then? Well, again, um, and 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 you used a key word there, artist development. 
And I honestly, I've been out of the business now for some time. Um, I don't know to what degree artist development is part of the picture these days. Back in that point in time, it was a huge aspect. It was, if, if you sign an artist, if you had the, the um, belief that the artist was going to be something, um, then you gave them time. Uh, and, um, of course, there had been a competition for prints and, and all the things that are you know quite well known because they've been talked about for a long time. Is there an expectation that one album will be do better than the album before? No, there's a hope. And that's the difference, because if it isn't, then you just sort of like, you know, the artist can think about it. In some cases, some artists would, would get guidance from the record company and the record company might say, well, this is what we think might have happened. I mean, there's no absolutes. Um, and so, I mean, you, you look, I mean, Seal would be another one that, that started to, to, to break big time. And then the next album wasn't what the record company hoped for in the way of potential sales with Prince. There was this absolute belief that, and he's not the only one. I mean, you know, I could say Katie Lang, there would be, there would be people across formats where there's an absolute belief. It's sort of putting your money where your mouth is and, and you stick with them. Um, at what point do you, are you, do you cut them loose? I don't really know. I think that's an individual thing. I mean, Katie Lang went quite a while before she had, uh, quote unquote, a hit. Um, but we also had artists, we had a lot of artists who who musically were very interesting, but never sold a lot of records because that's what Warner Brothers was about. It was about the music. It wasn't about, oh, yes, of course, it's a company that, that reports to shareholders, so it's got to, you know, it's got to make a bottom line. But you're always going to have that because, I mean, we had Madonna, we had Fleetwood Mac, we had ZZ Top, we had, you know, the, the, the ones that would help make the bottom line. But while you did that, you gave the opportunity to ones that you really, you know, loved the music, you gave them time to find themselves, to find the audience, for the audience to find them. Okay. All right. Do you remember when uh, it came time for Prince, when he presented uh, Dirty Mind, the album? Uh, was there, I mean, was that something that we kind of screamed out as this is something totally different than the first two projects? Oh. Do you remember anything about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the reality is with Prince, every album <laughs> was totally different. Right. Um, and, and people who tried to put him in categories, because, I mean, that is a natural thing for people to do. They try to categorize things. And there were people in the company who tried to categorize him. And it was something that was never going to work. Um you know, working in a record company, of course, most of the people would be there because they love music. But it doesn't necessarily mean that those same people are creative. It doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't mean that they're not good at their jobs, but they don't have the creative side. So they might have trouble understanding what's going on. And then and then, you know, you look at certain positions in the record company where it's their job to go get the record played at radio. It's their job to get it binned at, at, you know, Tower Records or what have you. And they're seeing the difficulties. 
and trying to figure out how to get past that. And sort of, in, you know, I, I, I do remember in one or two cases where an individual would say, what, what are we supposed to do with this? Mm-hmm. Um, because, it, again, it didn't fit a category. And, and people, by their very nature, like to be able to fit things into categories. That's, that's interesting. So that, that sort of leads me to another question in terms of, and we'll kind of jump around a little bit, but. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, I want to jump way ahead for a second because uh, I think what you just said reminds me of something like um, if I was your girlfriend, uh, yeah. one of the singles from Sign of the Times. Mm-hmm. And now to me, I can listen, I can hear that record and I'm like, damn, that's, that's okay, that's some Prince, this is some shit right here. You know, I can mm-hmm. hear some Sly, and but this is funky. But I could see like, there's a, there's a there's, I don't know if it's the A&R person or the, or the radio guy, he has to go take that to radio stations and and say like yo you need to you need to play this and do they sort of like i don't understand this record like it doesn't fit this vibe it's it's too funky for this or too slow for that is that some of the things you're talking about uh that too and then of course lyrics um you know it's uh, uh, this is way before lgbt and what have you and, and if i were your girlfriend it's like what the what's he talking about right and you know radio's not going to play this and in fact, a lot of radio programmers, you know, the ones that weren't daring and, and, and you know, because, again, they all have bosses. That's what you got to remember. They, were, they all answer to people um, that, that they're like, I can't put these lyrics on the radio. And also because it, it was sly. It was a combination of things and it was different. Um, but then that's what he was. Um, you know, like if you he would never ever want himself categorized or put in a, a, a particular place. I mean, that was from the very beginning when he was adamant about not being seen as a quote-unquote black artist. So he was always changing up. It was whatever was flowing through that crazy brain of his. Um, and, and I mean, he came up with masterpieces. That's just one. Um, but it again, it, it doesn't quote-unquote fit the uh you know the categories that radio has so it's like do you do you sort of stretch out there and put this in or because um, i i didn't work directly much with radio in that job but I, I was married to somebody in radio so i had a good sense of things on that side of, of the fence and and you know they're, they're going for a certain format a for certain sound and then you throw that into the mix and people are like whoa and and they're always worried about somebody's going to push the button and go to another station. Mm. All right, um, going to go back now to uh, uh, 1999. Uh, mm. that, that album, uh, that's a double album, obviously, uh, iconic record. Um, what was it? Uh, again, is this? If you can remember, does Prince like sort of come to Warner Brothers and say, "Hey, I have." this finished or this idea of this double album like are they just in a position they're like a double album of course or was there any sort of like pushback i'm just curious like how does that work because he had not blown up to be this huge superstar at that point um but i know he was very much just in my opinion very big in very certain regions of the country he was huge um yeah but in some places like here in seattle washington where i live barely ever heard of him um well, true. Um, and, and I mean, that album, um, that was just a funky damn album. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, <laughs> and and because it was quote unquote radio friendly, uh, which is a term that that is is tossed around in in the you know in the business. Um, I think people couldn't wait to get into it as far as, okay, let's promote this sucker because um, this this is what we've been looking for. You know what I mean? Okay. And this is, he started doing, uh, well, the, the video started getting played on MTV, right? Little Red Corvette. Yep. 1999. And then he's out on the road with that tour. And you kind of really, at this point, really start to see him sort of really, things starting to turn around in terms of sort of a mainstream uh, eyes being sort of thrown on him a little bit here at this point. Is that, that true? Well, well? A, a lot of that had to do with the fact that um, this, we actually had some time to work in, in this, uh, on this album. Um, and when I say that, because everyone knows how prolific he was with his albums, uh, his music. And because at that point in time, he was filming, <clears throat> excuse me, he was filming Purple Rain he actually found himself not having that much time to rush back and do the next album. So it gave us as a record company more time. So initially it was black music because I mean, it was very, very heavily embraced at black radio. Um, and pop radio had been trying to break him, but it's, it's not easy, especially back in that time because again, uh, people their perceptions and and what have you and and again unable to categorize him so they were actually able to re-release uh 1999 and go back at radio and by then because it had started to sort of be a phenomena pop radio then started really looking at it and you know uh then playing uh the album all right and, and also at this time, you, at this time, you guys, excuse me, had the second time album uh, was out. Uh, of course, you had seven, 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 ninety three, eleven. Talk to me a little about what was sort of the um, wait. How did that work? Obviously, we know Prince did that music, but um, how much of that were the record company aware of that that was really just Prince and not necessarily all of the other guys playing on those records? Well. <laughs> I think there certainly was a uh, there was certainly an understanding that he was very heavily involved. Um, I mean, I remember uh, there was a, a listening session at one of the uh, one of the, the studios in town, and a few of us just it was it was there it was for Warner Brother execs and. We uh, went to this place and to hear the time and then this guy with the, um, you know, the hood and the whole thing, you know, just sort of swishes in past us and goes down to the soundboard. And, you know, people are saying, is that Prince? Is that Prince? And I'm like, of course it's Prince. I mean, you know, hello. Um, and so that we <laughs> it was a, a poorly kept secret. Mm. Okay. All right. Uh, how, how, I mean, so you were working with black music at the time. I, I would imagine the time records were, were very much a great success for you guys. Oh, we, oh <laughs> yeah. They were huge. Um, uh, we were having a great deal of fun with all of that because we had the time, um, you know, he was uh, c coming out with, with vanity and what have you, but the time was a really 
tight, legitimate band. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was was great for us because it was like a one-two punch. Um, and and at Black Radio, Prince had sort of uh, he had the creds at this point. So you go in with the time, and and also because of what what that music was suddenly, you know, you, you, you just automatically got two or three ads at the radio station. So you know, from a record company standpoint, it's, yeah, this is great, you know, but they were very talented. And, you know, I worked a lot with Morris um, and Jerome and then, you know, Jimmy and Terry before they uh, left and what have you. And, and so, you know, there was an awful lot of promotion with them. They were very open to doing things. So, uh, yeah, they were a big part of, of what we were doing at that point. Now, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you guys also had uh, Zap. Roger Troutman was on one of those. That's correct. And those were huge records too. Like, I, it was like 1982, like Do I Diddy and all yeah. That stuff. I mean, Zap was very big. I mean, we had Ashford and Simpson. We had uh, Curtis Mayfield. We had, I mean, you know, the list sort of goes on. Um, we had the uh, Whitfield Group, which was, you know, uh, Rose Royce and and uh, uh, that sort of thing. So uh, we well. We were, I think, three or four years in a row voted the number one black division in the business by Billboard magazine. So, um, you know, that 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 in itself tells you that we had a massive depth of talent on the label. Wow. That's that's incredible. Um, all right. In the book, you uh, share a great uh, insider's point of view of the listening party for, uh, well, I don't say party, but the listening session at, uh, at the executive table uh, in regards to around the world in the day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard that story from other points of view or in, in other books before, but to hear it the way you told it, uh, can you tell us a little bit, just kind of walk us through a little bit of, of that? Because this is an interesting time to me. Obviously, the success of Purple Rain was phenomenal, it was crazy, and the anticipation was super high for what the follow-up would be. And that's the mistake the record company made, the word follow-up. <laughs> okay. Because, well, you know, most artists, not most, but many artists will, uh, and I use the word, uh, when I say artist, I'm, I'm lopping pr probably a bunch of people into that that probably don't really fit that term, but for mm -hmm. the purposes of what we're talking about. Um, if, if, if an artist has a record that starts to, you know, really happen, as a rule, they build on that. And the next record will probably sort of carry on as far as, okay, we're, we found the so-called formula so we're going to sort of continue because that's what people want to hear, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. While with Prince, there is no such thing as follow-up. When he's done, he's done. And I mean, that was that, that had to do with sort of everything with him. It wasn't just music. Huh? You know, it's just like, why are we re revisiting something that already happened? And in this case, I mean, he'd climbed the mountain, for God's sake. What was he going to do, look for a higher mountain? Um <laughs> He was in it because of the passion for the music. He was in it because he had this gift, which, and I mention it in the book, sometimes that gift, I question whether it is a gift or, or something much worse because it's stuff that's running through your head 24-7. You can't just turn it off. 
um, you and I and most people can't imagine what that is. Um, in, in this case, he went totally in another direction, completely and totally. And, and the other thing, it wasn't a follow-up because he was recording it when he was out on the road because, you know, heaven forbid you only do a concert. I mean, you know, like most human beings would do, he would do a concert, he would do after shows, he would go to the studio, um, shoot videos. I mean, he, he just had this ability to, you know, you wind him up and he just goes, the, the, the epitome of the ever ready battery. Um, so he, for whatever reasons, and I, I don't know, um, went in this totally other direction and people were in the room, you know, really looking forward to the next big thing. And then suddenly, you know, the music is obviously very different and you could, you could see the shifting in the room. You, you could see people like sort of their eyes going down, their eyes going up, uh, body language, etc. And it's all from the standpoint, irrespective of, of how good it was musically, it was like, what do we do with this? Mm. And in his mind, that's our problem because this is where he was at musically at that particular point in time. Wow. Is there, uh, is there any sort of like, uh, I, I think this was in the book, but I'm just curious, is this the presentation of him doing these songs like this and playing them for you, is that supposed to be like saying, hey, I want you to hear what I am presenting to you? Or is there some sort of situation where executives can be like, well, hey, I had some opinions about something or I had some thoughts about something. Is that? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you didn't always have listening sessions for every record. I mean, that's all we'd ever be doing if that, if that were the case. Um, sometimes it would be sort of a fancy thing because it's something that the artist and the people at the record company think are particularly, you know, incredible and they want to present it. Other times it's simply sent in by management uh, to the, the department that starts doing the physical, you know, setup of it. Uh, it in many cases with, with Prince, uh, many times it was simply delivered to Bo Austin by management or sometimes by Prince himself. Um I can't answer the question as far as why he would have decided he wanted to present this in person and play it. Um, it's always an interesting thing when an artist comes in and has the entire album and people sit in a room and listen to the whole album. Um, I think if I were an artist, I wouldn't want to do that uh, because it, it just, it. I mean, like, but see, as the artist, I would assume he just thought it was the fat, most fabulous. I mean, I happen to love the album. Um, and maybe he wanted to see the reaction of people. Maybe it was important to him that, that he be there in person because, hey, this isn't Purple Rain 2. I want you to see where I'm at at this point. And then that way I can look at your reactions because above and beyond what anybody might um, sense when they watch people listening to something, Prince had an uncanny sixth sense, uncanny. Um, so he can really read people. Um, and so he just sat there on the floor, legs crossed. Wendy and Lisa were with him. And I wasn't far. They, they, what, what he'd asked for, 
And this is typical Prince last minute because it's like there's no like forward thinking as far as, oh, well, let's let's next week do a, a, you know, a listening session. He would have his people call up at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning and saying, OK, we're doing a listening set. We are coming in at two o'clock. So whatever else you got going on, you'll switch it. And we want the conference table taken out. We want the curtains drawn. We want the room to have this nice ambient feeling. And so, you know, the company would make that happen. And in this case, he walked in with Wendy and Lisa. They were all in like silk pajamas. Um, so I sort of thought, oh, they look like they're heading off to a pajama party, but whatever. <laughs> and at that point, because what he had asked for was that the, the chairs or they're actually in that room. There's these large couches that are along the wall. Um, so they took out the chairs and the table. The couches were left. So some people were sitting in the couches and then other people were sitting on the floor because there wasn't enough seating. And so I wasn't sitting. I was already on the floor when he came in and, and he sat not far from me and just sort of nodded, you know, um, acknowledged. And I watched him as this record was going on. And even though his head was down most of the time, he, he, he vibed the room. He knew what was going on. Um, and what he did was just sort of a few bars from the end of the last cut. Um, they just sort of magically got up and he walked out. Um, wow. and, and what that said to me was he wasn't happy with the response. He didn't want to get caught up in somebody coming up to him and saying something that he didn't want to hear. Um, so he just he removed himself from the room. Hmm. Interesting. And, and, and I think I don't know if you mentioned it in this conversation here, but uh, in the book, you talk about when they walked in, they had they were sprinkling like feathers or not feathers, but uh <laughs> Yes, I'm sorry, I forgot that part. With Wendy and Lisa, they, again, they were in their jammies. Well, very nice ones, of course, you know, uh, so silk and all that. Uh, Wendy and Lisa were throwing uh, rose petals on the ground. Wow. So they, and, and they had the lighting. It was sort of like a cocktail lounge. And, you know, these, these big curtains that they had because it was also a big screen. Well, at that time, it was a projector uh, that we didn't have the flat screens. And um, so they, they have these blackout curtains. So the room, you could barely see in the room. Um, but that was the vibe he wanted. So that's fine. Um, so, yeah, they came in uh, rose petals and all. Mm. And I think it, it was his dad, his father was there, too, as well. I'm trying to remember. I think he might have been. I, I can't swear to it. I think I remember seeing him there that day. Yeah. All right. Wow. Well, yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting uh, album. I remember, and you know what was interesting back then, too, is obviously there was no internet back then. So, yeah. you know, when you did get the opportunity to see an artist perform, it was a big deal because they weren't all over the place, you know. Was, and I remember at that time, it seemed that Prince had kind of was gone for a little bit. You know, all we had saw was purple rain and then he comes back and uh it was the uh, i think it was that mtv interview where he was filming under the cherry moon he did that interview and he uh they did the america they performed america oh, that's right. yep, 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 and yep. I, i'm not sure if that was when they world premiered it might have raspberry Murray may have been out before that point but we'd only seen prince a few times and it was the raspberry beret video and he looked so different it was just like wow 
you know, he looks totally different from the kid, right? We just imagine the, the kid's uh, imagery. And so then we see this. And that wasn't a, a big thing because you didn't see him as much. And when you did, it was, he was totally different. You know, it was already on something different. Uh, well, that's it. Um, I mean, you, you, you couldn't keep up with them. Yeah. Um, it's just, again, the nature of, I, I used to say to people, and, and I actually, I think I referred to it in the book, but in my mind, I always felt like he would look at me or anyone else and he would feel like we were talking in slow motion <laughs> because he was just so out there. Um, he, he, he was on a different plane. I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, and, and on one hand, it's very hard to understand because none of us are, are on that plane. Um, there, there would be a handful. I mean, I would put Stevie Wonder in that kind of, of, of thing. I mean, there would be very, very few that would be where, you know, they're, they're just different. They're very, very different. Definitely. Um, let's get into this was another big thing and i was young when this happened but i was glued to my tv talk to me a little bit about sheridan wyoming (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that was um i mean initially i i had no plans to go because i wasn't needed or anything like that and it just was it was in the too hard basket uh as far as getting there and what have you i i I just i really remember because we all had our TVs on or, or those of us who were curious at the time that MTV did the drawing mm-hmm. and whose you know, idea draw, was that but whose idea sorry? was that sorry no I was just asking whose idea was it to do that contest was it a Warner Brothers um, or it, it was it was a combination my understanding was a combination of the people at Paisley Park and MTV and Warner Brothers tell um, Warner Brothers pictures Okay. Um, so, so uh, I would say it was a picture company idea taken to MTV, you know, with, with the blessing of Paisley Park, obviously, um, and and with the thought process, of course, what are the chances with with the MTV um, listenership or, or, or viewership being what it is that it would most likely be LA, New York, San Francisco, Chicago. You know, it would be a big city, and. It would be then very easy to facilitate because he got everything from all the equipment that MTV has to bring in to uh, film the after party, um, limos, uh, all the, the support people. You, you want to get a nice big theater, um, you know, the red carpet, blah, 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 and, and, and on and on and on. And then... I mean, I remember because I was on the phone seconds later with with, with Paisley Park. It's like, where the is Sheridan, Wyoming? And we had maps out because, again, at that time, we didn't have Internet and what have you. We're we're like scrambling. Well, it's in Wyoming, so that narrows it down. Um, And immediately everybody everybody's into high gear on how do we make this happen because we can't change it. It's been announced, so we can't fiddle with the results. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got to imagine that certainly the people at Warner Pictures would have been concerned that Prince would back out. 
but he was a really good sport about it. He had agreed to do it, and he was like, okay, whatever, you know. Um, they worked it out, so they had a couple of gigs either right before or right after in Denver or what have you. I don't remember the details, so that it, it could help um, offset some of the costs uh, of going there. Uh, but, I mean, they, they, the logistics were incredible. Even, even finding a place um, for the after show – not that that was hard. There was only one hotel that even began to have the space, and that was the Holiday Inn. So it wasn't like a comparing places, but the Holiday Inn Sheridan has a conference room, but it's meant for conferences, and it does have a stage, but it's not meant for a rock star. So you have super low ceilings. Um, I mean, they were just about touching the ceiling on stage and it was so hot it was just so hot it was unbelievable because the lights there because you know it's prince we don't do a half-ass show we're gonna you know we don't care where it is it's still gonna have the quality and that's another thing i really always respected about him um it was never going to be well in this case it's not important so we'll shave here and there it was full-on and by the time I thought they were going to faint up there because I know I was I was standing at right at the corner of the stage on the floor. And I mean, I was just sweating like um, it was just so hot. I just can't begin to tell you. But the whole adventure for me personally, and that's covered in the book, ended up being one hilarious situation after another. Um, because, you know, Paisley did decide I was coming, and, and even when I couldn't find air reservations, they found a way for me to get there, um, and so there I was. Um, and it, it, it ended up being one of the, the greatest and funniest memories I have of my career. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, you got to read in the book. It, it's like a movie or something. I was like, wow, what is, you know, this, this whole a ranch and all everything is. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ranch we ended up at and uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the saddles in, in this absolutely massive, massive. I don't know if you call it a family room, a great room, really, although they didn't have that term then and a bar. That, that had wood that had been from some old western something or other and it had either 10 or 12 bar stools and all of them were hand tooled leather saddles so if you wanted to sit at the bar you had to mount the saddle um and i'm it, it, and this is like in the middle of bloody nowhere but it was a very very well-to-do rancher he and his wife were absolutely lovely. They opened their home to some of us who weren't able to get out of town. Um, so we had something to do for that day. But, um, yeah, the whole the whole experience and, of course, what happened after the show and the winner that I had with BET, it, it, it went back to the thing, as I mentioned in the book, that, that even though I, I, I said, oh, no, I'm not going to go because I don't want to cost – you know, it's not necessary for me to be there because I don't want to cost the company money. And then with the problem that we ran into with the winner, uh, thank God I was there because it, it would have turned into something else altogether if someone hadn't been there to, to, to sort of fix things for her. So um, it goes to the it goes to that thing of like, you know, sometimes you think you're saving money and you're not doing the right thing because what is it? The old term shit happens. Uh, so. <laughs> All right. You, you, we, we mentioned uh, BET a few times and you uh, mentioned them a lot in your book, which I think is excellent. And I wanted to take the opportunity because, uh, you know, a lot of people 
not so much now, but back then it was just MTV, MTV. It's always you always hear MTV, and rightfully so. But uh, BET, uh, Donnie Simpson, uh, Video Soul, that played an important role in getting a lot of music out there, black music, whether it was R&B, soul, hip hop. But it also was a, had a lot to do with Prince stuff as well. And I love that you really give BET their props in this book. But talk to us a little bit about the importance of, you know, the BET channel to, to Warner Brothers at that time. Well, um, what, let me just first say I, I've been back in touch with Donnie just in the last few weeks. And he very graciously read the book. And I, I uh, got some really beautiful comments from him. So it was really one thing this book has done is reconnected me with some people. Um, BET uh, was something that I recognized very early on as being very, very important. There was so much um, importance being put on MTV. And, of course, MTV um, wasn't going to play 95, maybe 98 percent of, of black music videos. It wasn't going to happen. And instead of knocking your head against that wall, then it was important to support a um, a, a TV network that would and did it in such a gracious way. Um, BET was incredibly important to me personally. I made lifelong friends from that place, but they would would help us. Um, it wasn't just about well, give us Prince, give us Quincy Jones, give us you know your your main acts. It was like, what do you need help with? And I would go in and I, I went back there every month because um, I, I just felt they were that important. Um, and the things they did, whether it was specials or, or we had so many acts on Video Soul. Um, Video LP was another one. Rap City with Keith Pichel. Um, I mean, all these shows were really, really important. And they were building and they had a very good core audience. And I saw it as really the duty of a company like Warner Brothers, because certainly we were one of the big guys, um, that it was it behooved us to support them and make sure that they got whatever help or what have you that we could give from our end. And that included, um, you know, the thing I did with with the theme song that Prince wrote for them. Um, it, it included uh, the, the the 10th anniversary party that I organized to have at Warner Brothers uh, in there uh, to 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 thank them for 10 years of being on the air. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do mention them a lot, but with reason. Um, they were and continue to be a very, very important element. And what happened, I always felt, was, was one of the things I loved about our department um, <clears throat> and Tom Draper, who ran it for the first 10 years that I was there, and then uh, Ray Harris, Ernie Singleton. But they really allowed me to, because I went to them and I said, look, you know, we, we need to treat them importantly. I said, I also want, you know, I was pitching for myself to do it, but it didn't matter. Someone from black music to actually be the chart liaison for uh, the black charts at Billboard, Record World, Cashbox, because 
I felt it needed to be handled from the black music department, not as an ancillary thing from pop music, which at that time was what was happening. Um, Because I said, look, I can take it on in addition to whatever else I'm doing. That's, you know, it's not like I'm looking that we should hire someone. It's just we need to give these people their props and show them that as a department, we recognize them. So, um, yeah, I'm very grateful to them. And that is, you know, anything I said in the book was true. Absolutely true. All right. Yeah, uh, Donnie Simpson and Video Soul and yeah, Video LP. I think the song you're mentioning it was a pheromone. End up being a pheromone. Pheromone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was I'm trying to remember the lady that was the host of that show? Is it Sherry? Something? Oh, sh- uh, sh- Oh, darn. <laughs> I know. I'll, I'll figure it out later. Uh, I can picture her. Isn't Beautiful. It'll Beautiful. Be yeah. All right. Yeah. That's that. That was. Uh, I mean, it was must must see television. Just who they would have on there and just the love of the culture and just, you know, it was just genuine. Uh, well, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, uh, cause I, I made a point. I mean, I, I worked a lot and always made sure when I came in, I went over to corporate and saw Bob Johnson um, mm-hmm. because he was the man with the vision that started, uh, started the network. And, I always felt it was important. There were just so, so many people there that were all part and parcel, and and, and many of them uh, have gone on to have very uh, strong careers. Um, it was it was a great learning ground for a lot of the producers and what have you, because that a lot of them have gone on to to do really big things. So, yes, and and uh, the lady I was thinking about, Sherry Carter. Uh, that's it yeah that's sherry it. carter and actually i think the original host was robin breeden yeah uh, robin yeah. i remember <clears throat> yeah, yep. yeah, and sherry. alvin jones did uh <laughs> uh one of the shows um gosh you're really testing my memory now <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it was it, it was great stuff um so yeah just definitely shout out to bt um Wanted to go to Sign of the Times because I, I I would love if we can hear sort of the Warner Brothers approach. And I don't know if you know any of this other stuff, but I mean, in terms of walking us through Sign of the Times, how it gets to Sign of the Times, we've heard the stories of, you know, Prince started out with the Dream Factory project, and then he goes into Crystal Ball. And if I'm not mistaken, Crystal Ball is what is sort of you know, presented to Warner Brothers, like, hey, this is a three LP set that I want to do. And then I don't know if this is the first time, but you you get the pushback to say, yo, maybe we can't do that, you know, and then it sort of morphs into this two LP thing with Sign of Times. Were you, you remember anything of that? Yeah, I I do. And it's important to note um, the, the part of the story that's always left out uh, because it's not really known is the fact that at that particular point in time, we were going through a difficult time economically as a country. And it, part of the job of a record company is giving direction and giving help because, you know, an artist is just uh, theoretically just about the creativity. And so he had three he had three records of, of creative music. So he wanted them all out there. And of course, this is an artist who is very prolific. So that is always going to be an issue. 
it's a combination that, of course, he, he was putting out a lot of music, sort of one after another. But more importantly, the feeling at Warner Brothers, and it wasn't just with Prince. There were a couple of other artists that were coming in with like double record sets that really should only have a one record. Um, it's a question then of what people can afford to purchase. And you want to give the artist the the best opportunity to get the music out there and sold, uh, which obviously benefits the record company as well. But if people are losing their jobs, if people are having trouble putting um, food on the table, then asking them to buy a three record set, even if it is Prince, is a big ask. So... Hmm. As I say, it is part of the job of the record label to give direction and say, look, you know, we really don't think this is the time for that. On top of that, and this is the part I don't know, I'm only speculating, at, at the top of the company, maybe they felt strength-wise it was two records, that, 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 that maybe there was some quote-unquote, I hate to use the word, but filler. Um, I, I don't know if that's the case, but that is something that is looked at when an artist comes in with a multi-record set. Um, is is this just you know filler, or is this a legitimate three, four, however many records it is? Um, that that's part of the job of of the people, and, and this goes in this case it would be Mo and Lenny because that was the level of what uh, and Russ Thyret, who was another important piece of the Prince puzzle. Uh, they would be the ones saying, "Yo, you know, uh, let's let's rethink this." So um, that had a lot to do with how that ended up being two records. I mean, I don't think he was real happy with it, but what artists would be. Wow. Now, in terms of the relationship and the communication, is that sort of Prince's management coming first or did Prince have the relationship where he would just go directly to, you know, Mo Austin and those guys and say, here's what I have for you? Um, it's a combination of both. Prince was not somebody who cared about the quote unquote appropriate uh, way to do it. I mean, probably 95, 98% of artists would have their managers deal with the record company on everything because they can't be bothered. And that's what they hire the managers to do because the managers are business people. So they know how to talk to the suits at the record company. Um, Prince, because he's, he, he has never been one who easily gives up control. Um, and, and I would assume that that is yet another control issue. Um, so while certainly I saw Steve Farnoli and Bob Cavallo, especially in the building, a fair bit, um, that didn't stop Prince from picking up the phone and calling Mo directly. Um, I'm sure he did it on a regular basis. And, you know, so at the point that the album does come out, you know, on the first single was Sign of Times. But a thing that was striking at the time, to me at least, was that there was no no video. I mean, obviously there was the video with the words, but I mean, there wasn't, an, you know, a regular sort of video with prints in it. Was that, I mean, what was that kind of, do you remember, was there people like Warner Brothers saying, yo, we need a video to push this record? Or was they just like... <laughs> let's, let's put it this way. Prince never, ever picked up the promotion handbook and read it, okay? Um, and at that point in time, you had a video. That's just how it was done. And... He'd be like, yeah, so I don't want a video. 
And I, I do know that the record company definitely, absolutely, positively, without question, wanted a video. And he definitely, positively didn't. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, what do you do? So is that, that video that is out there for Sign of Times, is that something that Warner Brothers just created then? I, as I recall, and again, I, I could be wrong, I think he had it done just to shut them up. Wow. <laughs> and, and also the other question who, who picks the singles for, at least for this particular album at least as well is at Prince oh, okay because uh, I was going to say that's, that's another moving target um, in, in many artists case it is the uh, black in the, uh, for black artists it would be the black music division um, you know the head of promotion the head of the department you'd sit down listen to it and you'd make the suggestion and nine times out of ten the artist would go with that um, again, we're talking about Prince, um, so we're not talking about every other artist. So he uh, would define what it would be, and there would be times when the record company would have a bit of trouble with the choice, but that didn't change it. Mm. Because again, I got one of his greatest albums, but I just remember. As a fan, I remember Signing Times came out, and I, you know, I was cool. You know, the biggest thing I remember from that was that 12-inch, right? You know, it has a cat on the cover with the heart. Yeah. Uh, that, that was brilliant. Whoever came up with the imagery for that, I don't know if it was Prince, you know, hands down, that blew me away. I was just like, well, what is it? I remember seeing in Target, I mean, not Target, Target, Tower Records. I remember walking in Tower Records and seeing that up there. And at first, I didn't even know it was Prince or had anything to do with it. But then somebody said, "No, this is the new Prince one." I was like, my jaw dropped. I was like, "Whoa, I gotta buy it!" You know. Mm. Um, Sign of the Times. If if somebody pressed me and asked me for my favorite Prince album, it would be Sign. Um, we didn't have enough time to promote it because there was so much depth to that album. We could have gone quite a quite we could have had several more singles out of that album i believe but again he was on to the next wow and in and, the, the the tour i guess got cut short yeah didn't come was yeah. there i don't know if you know was there a reason why that uh sign of times movie did not come out through warner brothers pictures uh I'm going to speculate here and and say that it's probably because that, that you know with the problems with Cherry Moon, et cetera, et cetera, that they really. Oh, I remember what it was. Now I remember it was they couldn't get it out fast enough. Oh wow! And they didn't want it out. Remember, they didn't want it out before Christmas because they didn't feel it was that kind of movie because it's a concert movie. Um, and so uh. You know, Mr. Mr. Patience uh, decided <laughs> to, to find another way because that wasn't uh, that didn't work for him. Wow, he had to have it out, and he was gonna make it happen one way. Or See, the other. thing is that that and and anyone out there who's listening to this, and if you happen to be a painter, a writer, um, you know, anything in the creative field, if you create something, you want it out there, you want it seen. Mm-hmm. You don't want it in a closet waiting. You know, a year from now we'll be ready, that sort of thing. Um, so there is this, this, from a creative standpoint, there is this need 
because it's how you're feeling. It's your emotions at that particular point in time. So it's important to get it out there. If you paint a painting, you know, you, you want people to see it. You want it in a gallery or you want it on your wall so people can see it. I mean, even in a smaller way, this book that I've done, which is self-published, I thought about trying to get a publisher, which I may or may not have had success with, but that would have delayed it about a year. Mm-hmm. And so my creative thing kicked in and said, wait a second, not only do I not want to wait a year because this is how I'm feeling right now and I need to get these feelings out there, but, and not unlike somebody we're talking about, I have complete creative control by doing it myself. I have a couple of friends who have published books and and that's great, but they've said that while it's good because you get the, it's sort of like having Wea you know, out there distributing your records as opposed to you going into the record stores yourself and saying, will you carry this? Um, it, it, it means that you lose a certain creative control. They, they start switching words around. They take things out. They put things in. Or like the writer that gets his manuscript purchased to make a movie and suddenly the movie is nothing like what he wrote. So um, it's all of those things. Wow. And uh, so with Sign of the Times... You know, I, I sometimes almost get the impression that because Prince wasn't able to do Crystal Ball, I like probably really, really wanted to do, and then he sort of, okay, let's make it this. It almost seemed like it, I, I'm putting words in his mouth. He was only washed his hands of it a little earlier than maybe that he could have worked that I, stuff. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I can't, I can't uh, spec. Well, I can speculate, but I, I. I that doesn't feel right to me, okay. but that doesn't mean that that isn't the situation. He often would get tired of things. I mean, suddenly the Purple Rain tour ended right. because he he was tired of performing it, even though he could have continued to make a potload of money and people around him tried to talk him into continuing. He said, no, I'm done. Mm. Well, and then also at this time, uh, Science Times, they, you guys also uh, release... Uh, the first Madhouse album, actually maybe the first two came out around the same, in, within a year or maybe less, but Madhouse 8. Yep. Uh, does that, was that handled by the Black Music Department too? Yep, absolutely. As well as um, we had uh, a smaller jazz department at that time. When I moved over to jazz, it was, it was a, a separate, it was a division uh, with more people, but um, yeah, but we worked very closely with jazz because I mean, just the, the, the nature of the the music, you know, um, but yes, we definitely worked that album or and, those albums. And like the, particularly on that first album, I'm just curious, like how do you remember, like how you guys sort of came up with how to market that? Because I know that I think it was six that was a, a nice, you know, hit with you know it was, it was hitting a little bit and it was on radio. I remember hearing it on the radio station. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you guys market that? Well, you couldn't obviously, you didn't have Prince's face on it let alone his name necessarily. I mean, it was attached to Paisley Park. But uh, how, how were you guys market that record? Well, radio's not stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Paisley Park label was on there right. and Eric was in, in um, uh, Prince's band and, and, you know, a couple others, what have you. So um, as a record company, you know, you use whatever – you can, and, and I'm sure when the local promotion people went into radio and what have you, they would have said, this is Prince's jazz group, um, you know? Mm. I mean, 
again, you, you, you do what you got to do because that sort of music wouldn't necessarily be embraced by black radio. So you've got to use whatever marketing ploys you can. Interesting. Interesting. Um, also, you know, I got to ask you about, uh, so you're coming off a sign of times and then Prince uh, wants to release the black album. Yeah. And of course that doesn't come out and we've heard some of the story, but from your perspective, what do you remember about that piece? And when did you hear that it wasn't coming out? Um, well, it was all very last minute, typical Prince. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you certainly don't get big notification on things, but, um, <clears throat> We, uh, you know, felt that there was definitely some some great music on that album, and and um, you know, I I like many people had uh, a handful of cassettes or you know test pressings and what have you, and being stupid, I didn't keep them. But uh, you know, what can I say? When I moved when I moved to Australia, an awful lot of things got pelted. I mean, I still have a cassette, but you know. Um, he had his reasons, and I've heard multiple things, just like anyone else has. I have my own theories on what caused him to pull the plug on it, which I don't talk about because it is theories and nothing more. Um, he made the call to Mo, saying that it didn't want to come, and 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 I I'm, I would have to assume Mo tried to talk him out of that, but for his own reasons, it couldn't go, and. Again, going back to the kind of record company that Warner Brothers was, um, being an artist-orientated company, even though it meant losing a fair bit of money because everything was ready to go and destroying and what have you, Mo's like, yep, yeah, okay, and and it got done. And we all got memos saying that, you know, any that we had, we were to turn back in and et cetera, et cetera. Wow. That that just I don't think I don't I'd be interesting if any other label would do something like that when one of your bigger artists is. Getting- I don't think I mean again it, it's speculation, but I doubt it. Yeah, that's, but that's wild. because and that's what I loved about that company because they listened to their artists, they listened to their executives. Um, so it, it it is a very creative environment and. Um, I'm sure Mo would have, and you know, Ross might have rung him because they had a relationship, you know, and, and said, hey man, why, you know, whatever. And Prince was adamant. So, okay, when Prince is adamant, you can argue till you're blue in the face, but it's not going to change things. So either you say yes or you say no. And because of the kind of company Warner Brothers is, they said yes. Mm. All right. And then, you know, so, so the next thing that comes for that, I, I want to, what was it like? in the office or, or whatever when uh, you guys are presented with the cover for the Love Sexy album? <laughs> uh, concern. <laughs> and and this is when we, uh, you know, because they're all the salespeople and what have you, they're like, oh my God, we're never going to get these racked in, you know, the, the, the Kmarts and the Best Buys and what have you because they're just not going to go for this. And I believe... There were some discussions with with Prince's management about the possibility of changing the album or having a second album cover. Um, I understand that may have happened, but it's quite obvious that that didn't happen. Wow. I I remember going to buy that album and it was like, it was behind the counter. Mm -hmm. It's like buying a thing of cigarettes. (laughs) Um, and, and, And on top of that, 
I'm sure you remember the, the originally the album didn't didn't have banding. Right. So because he wanted people to listen it listen to it from front to back. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of discussion about that as well. And finally, we did a radio promotion version that was banded because how were you going to promote it to radio? Right. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, it was, I would say it was some cool packaging. I remember the 12 inches. They had this sort of plastic see-through slip cases. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was, that, was, that was very cool. Who, whose idea would be for those types of things? Well, um, he had, <clears throat> excuse me, not only did he have a, a uh, person in the art department at Warner Brothers, he also used some outside people. So I would guess that it all came from that side of things. Okay. And uh, I see in the book, uh, not just this tour, but some of the other ones, you, uh, you, wanna, you were on the road with them, some parts of the Love Sexy uh, tour, is that correct? Yes, yes. Um, I stayed away on the Purple Rain tour because it was just frantic. I mean, it was just, yeah, everybody everybody and his mama wanted to be on that tour because it's the old story. When something's really happening, everyone wants to be a part of it. Well, when it came to Love Sexy, that wasn't the situation. And I felt that based on just some discussions up there and what have you, I just felt it was a good time for me to be out there and if nothing else, even if we didn't speak, he'd see my face around and what have you, just to show that there was support from the record label. And um, I actually, you know, because I love the Love Sexy Tour, I love the show. Um, So uh, it wasn't really like work for me. Um, And it was just sort of being there to support and and what have you. It it seems to mean a lot to artists in general to have record label representatives at at where they see them along the way on tours and the opening and what have you. Because I've had that discussion with a few artists and it it seems to mean a great deal to them because it shows the label cares. Okay. And also, can you you speak... uh about Billy Sparks, uh, you mentioned Billy, my man. Yeah, tell, a lot of people just know Billy as being, you know, the, the guy. And what the wrong with you, kid? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. no stage for your personal <laughs> bullshit. You know, <laughs> but obviously his, his big movie part, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, he's immortalized with that. But uh, tell us. I mean, he's obviously a lot more than that in reality. Uh, a whole bunch more. He is. Um, to this day, I talk to him every month. Okay. Um, he he is like a, a big brother to me. Um, he is a kind, uh, wonderful human being. Um, he was absolutely devoted to Prince as far as you know. He he was part of the promotion uh, promoters. He he and uh, Quentin Perry, uh, along with Jeff Sharp, they they did a whole ton of of the tours. So he would be out there every night. And when I was out on tour, we'd hook up, what have you. And he also um, would do individual promotion and marketing for Prince. Prince would have him come up to Minneapolis and play something new and get his opinion. And then uh, in many cases, uh, Billy would take it on as a project and he would get in a car and drive around uh, the U.S., 
in and out of radio, but he, he did a lot of the marketing for the uh, tours. Um, he set up a lot of the giveaways at radio. He and I worked very closely on that in every city, every tour. Um, you know, it, it was a constant. We, we probably talked on the phone three, four, five times a day when, when Prince was out on tour. All right, excellent. Um, just just one little thing I want to mention in terms of uh, Batman. Because and also I got to say there are some great pictures in Mary Lou's book uh, that you ain't gonna see anywhere else. These are pictures from inside Paisley Park uh, during the '80s that I would, had never seen. You know, obviously never seen before. It was just interesting, very interesting to see the different rooms in there and different things. Uh, but there was a picture that you had of a jar of honey, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I've never heard of this thing before in terms of with Kim and uh, Kim Basinger. And uh, Prince, what what is, what is that honey thing promotion tie? Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> well, you knew about Kim and Prince, I assume. Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, because he met her on the Batman set and et cetera, et cetera. And so they had a thing going for however long they had a thing going. Because I, I, I never got involved in his personal life in any way, shape or form. Um, but when Scandalous, when he was in the studio, Studio A at Paisley recording Scandalous, she was in the studio with him. And so there were all sorts of, of funny stories going around Paisley Park about what was going on in the studio while this uh, record or, or, you know, the song was being recorded. So... Me being in promotion and always trying to think of different ways to promote things and et cetera, et cetera. Well, when you think of honey and that sort of scenario, you know, and you let your mind sort of go. And so I thought, well, I'll have little jars of honey made up for radio that will be delivered along with the record. And um, a prince thought it was a hoot. I mean, you know, because, again, that crazy sense of humor. That's why I knew it would work, because I thought, you know, he will think this is funny. Um, So it's just alluding to something that probably didn't even happen. But it didn't matter because it was just it, it, it made for a lot of talk at radio. Nice. And that's why Kim's name is actually on the jar as well, because otherwise it'd be like, what is this? Um, so, yeah, um, it, it was just one of those little gotcha moments, you know. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> wow, those, those are quite the collector's item. If, if somebody can find that, that's, that's cool. Yeah, no, there aren't many around. I actually, to be honest, I, I, again, in my move to Australia, I was I was too harsh in throwing things away i actually had to put the word out among my warner brothers sisters and brothers and ask if anybody had one and could they take a picture of it and that's how i got it (laughs) they didn't even know what it was for i would this is months ago i said does anybody have you know and 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 one one of the uh pop promotion people um actually had one and he sent uh, pictures i said thank you very much and he never asked what it was for (laughs) (laughs) that's funny um you you are also around for the uh, filming of Graffiti Bridge, and, and you know I don't want to spoil the stories here, but they were just amazing to me and funny. But I wanted oh, yeah. to, I wanted to ask you too though um, before we before Graffiti Bridge, uh, Prince had reunited with uh, Morris Day, and I think Jerome was there, and they recorded another Time album, uh, mm-hmm. Corporate World. Do you remember that? 
scenario and was this was the intention for them to release a new time album and a movie or or did or did they you know sort of decide hey why don't we scrap this album and then just have the original guys get back together as well and then put them in this movie you kind of remember any of that sort of stuff happening uh Sort of vaguely. I mean, I actually went over to the video set where they were, uh, the time was in that giant frying pan. Yes. And um, uh, <laughs> I forget what the name of the song was at this point, but I just, I dropped in to say hey to the guys. And I mean, on the one hand, it looked like they were trying to get together. On the other hand, uh, it was obvious that, that everybody had sort of grown in different directions and what have you. So, you know, I, it, if there were discussions, it wasn't anything I was part of. Okay. I remember they had, um, there used to be a video uh, going around. It was, uh, it was actually a WIA, some sort of convention or event or something, and Time played a whole concert there. I don't know if you... Yes. Um, the... Every year or every other year, we, it, was, it was a regular thing, uh, we would have a convention and it would, a lot of times it was in Miami, but we had them in Chicago, Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. And there would be representatives from all the labels and then all the WIA people from the branch managers on down would go to this. And, and it was a common, it was always like around September, October, because then you've got your big release coming up for Christmas. And each label would produce a video um, of, you know, upcoming stuff and what have you, along with it was a chance for people to talk and, and we would, would, would unveil their plans for specials for the holiday season. Some of those videos were particularly hilarious because the labels were always trying to outdo one another. And so they would take on a theme of, of some sort of popular theme at that particular time and, and actual executives of the company would act out these parts and what have you. And then of course the music, in addition to that, um, at, at every convention, each label would have a night, uh, where it would be the, you know, the big dinner where everybody had it in the, in the, in the convention room. And then one of that labels acts would perform. So we saw some absolutely amazing music from all three labels in what was a, a, a relatively small environment. I mean, it was everyone from Rod Stewart, Simply Red, Johnny Cash to Prince did it one year, um, Time did it. So that that would be probably what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, I was. That was great. One of them great video bootlegs that a lot of fans. Yeah, have. yeah, and I mean those shows were just amazing because, you know, it's like seeing somebody in a small environment, and it's their way also of thanking, not just the label but WIA for all the support. So, so some of them, it, it really becomes very personalized to the people in the room. So that's it's a very cool thing. Everybody gets very energized from it. All right, um, I, I'm gonna. I could go through all kind of stuff, trust me, but I want to be respectful of your time. But I want to ask this last series of questions and have a discussion because I think it's a, it needs to be to, to be asked and talked about if we can. But Prince in the 90s, mm -hmm. uh, starting with uh, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw, the, I see in the book, you got like an award presentation thing to you from him yeah thanking me for my influence on his career that was amazing that was amazing oh uh, beyond me i mean I, to this day 
um, it's it's the most important thing I've ever been given by anybody. Wow. Uh, to recognize that way, yeah. Right on. What was, uh, I, I'm curious though, a major company corporation like Warner Brothers, how how did they, uh, I don't know if it's allow is the word, but to let one of their biggest artists release a song not on their label, like independently like that. I ain't never heard of anything like that before that I knew of at that time. Uh, there had to been a lot of discussions about that. There, there would have been, but again, it's the kind of company Warner's is. I mean, you know, that that, that there would have been discuss, discussions at the top of the company, something I wouldn't have had, you know, any, any part of. And they would have come to an agreement because uh, within reason, Mo ran a company that was extremely flexible towards the artist. Mm. Yeah, so. it's, that's an amazing move. And, and then that, that song, you know, goes on to be a huge hit. Mm. I can only imagine, I speculate that that would have been a, a light bulb for Prince to be like, oh, okay. Mm. I, I, I'm, I'm right. <laughs> I know how to do this. Yeah, and and then you get into the argument of at that point in time was he giving us his best music? Right. Was he saving it for you know? I mean, you can you can start arguing both sides of that of that one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And well, uh, so that is a very interesting time because obviously you know he comes out with Slave soon yeah. after this, and that's a shocking thing to do, right? Like. For as much as the relationship with Warner Brothers was leading up to that point, and and as you speak about in terms of the leeway and, you know, being an artist-centric label, and then here comes sort of the poster child of uh, being creative and allowing an artist to be creative to sort of come back and, you know, putting this imagery out there that I'm a slave to to this situation and, and I'm not able to put out what I want to put out and things. What was, what were you guys' point of view? It was, a, it was an extraordinarily awkward and difficult time. It was certainly awkward for me because um, <clears throat> I felt sort of like the ham and sandwich. Um, but I guess it, it, in his defense, and I, I mean, I can argue this one really strongly on both sides. Uh, in his defense, he and this is I tried to point this out to promotion people and stuff. He wasn't saying you haven't promoted my records or you know you you've done me wrong or this and that. He was he was going against the system, um, the system which in his mind made him a slave. He wrote this stuff, he recorded this stuff, and yet he didn't own it. Um, again, I'll use the analogy: you've painted a painting. Imagine that the gallery owner owns it. And you can't have it back because you've given it to the gallery owner to hang. And and it's yours. It's your creation, but it's no longer yours. So, you know, that's the argument on that side. Then you come to the record company side, which has been promoting, marketing, supporting in every way possible, financially and in every other way, and therefore has to see a return on its investment um, because at the end of the day, I mean, that is why you're you know, you're in business, you you have to have a return. And obviously down the track, especially an artist like like a Prince, who who many people discovered not right at the beginning, it's catalog sales. Catalog sales are without question 
the biggest money maker for any record label because at that point you don't have the marketing costs you don't have you know you, you don't have you're now mm-hmm. finally this this is the gravy if you will and so you know i can't answer the question because i mean i'm very very split on how I feel about it. Um, it just was very, very unfortunate at that point in time. He, I, I believe, you know, Mo and Lenny were sort of throwing their head, hands up because no matter what they did, it wasn't enough. Um, you know, Prince was throwing his hands up because he wanted he wanted his masters. Um, he didn't want to be forced to. He, he wanted to just if he wanted to release an album every week, he wanted to do it, which. On the business side, we know is a very, very bad idea. But try to tell an artist that, especially one like him. He's so bloody prolific. <laughs> right, um, right. You know, you're trying to say because I mean, when he he, and it's it's a chapter in the book about when he came to me and just you know it's like you tell them, and it was this plaintive look, which to this day I remember. What you know, because we were like face to face. And I said, Prince, people can't absorb your music as quickly as you are, you know. Uh, producing it and you know he says well what am I supposed to do it just comes through me mm. and you know I, I remember thinking I had heard of that phenomenon before but I had never been face to face with it and for us mere hu- human mortals it's hard to grasp that so the slave thing was it over the top yeah but he was never one to be afraid to get attention. It, <laughs> it was his way. He certainly got attention. Well, yeah, no, no doubt about it. And, you know, I, he was obviously still making a lot of music and then he was on the road uh, during this time. And, and I remember there would be uh, like the MPG had came out with an album at this time. Uh, it was an import album for us. But I think Warner Brothers at some point must have been uh, it must have been a decision to to put that album out, but then it must have been pulled back because you guys released a single uh, from that, The Good Life. I think it was The Good Life. If you remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just sort of vaguely recall that because um, there, there was an awful lot, because you're talking mid-90s, aren't you? Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, there was an awful lot going on in the company right then. And, and Prince was only a very, to be honest, a very small part of what was going on. Um, there was a lot of upheaval. Um, you, so you guys also had, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, uh, some of the death row, I think stuff was, yes, was, was no, 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 we didn't have death row. Okay. Was it through like uh, some of the distribution p- part or something, or was it... yeah, it could have been. Okay, it could have been. Now the other thing is, remember, I went over to the jazz department in 1995. Okay, and there was a complete and utter change in how black music department worked at that point. So, um, when I made that move for reasons that I won't go into, I didn't look back. Mm-hmm. So what they did after that, I can't speak on. Gotcha. Uh, here's another question. This is, and you allude early on when you get this position to be the vice president of uh, of black music that you know it could have went to some other black person or something like that. But I, I'm just very curious. Like, was there? I would imagine now if they had such a thing as black music, I don't know if they do or not. It would probably be a lot of boo ha ha about this. But uh, 
you you are a white woman. Let's be clear about that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're uh, right. I can't hide. That. <laughs> right, um, but I'm curious. Uh, what? How did? Uh, and obviously, you're qualified to do the job. Is how you got the job. But but was there? Uh, what commotion happened? about that? I'll, I'll cut in so that you don't have to struggle. Okay. Um, <laughs> when I got hired, initially it was just as a PA, personal assistant, and I had been over at Warner Pictures and Warner Television, and I had been in music before that, and I missed the music. So I wanted to get to Warner Brothers because I love the company, so I wanted to get to Warner Records. And I had a friend in human resources. I asked her to have a lookout, you know, for anything that I might be suited. And I wanted to be in a young division or young department because people didn't leave Warner Brothers. So your best way of having opportunity was in a department that's had growth potential. Uh, Tom Draper had taken over as the head of black music about six months earlier. And I went over and interviewed with him and we got on. We got on very, very, very well. Our our outlook on music on everything was was very similar and he 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 did take a massive chance um at the time i didn't understand i was in my 20s i was naive you know and and i didn't see any difference between black and white you know i really was naive and i had grown up on motown music i had grown up on black music without realizing that's what it was and he even warned me at the time of the interview, he said, you know, there are going to be times where you're going to have issues, you're going to have problems. And again, my naivety was like, what are you talking about? And through the years, at least in the early years, there were definitely times where I felt uncomfortable. Mm. But with that said, as time went on and people got to know me and got to know what my real passion was, that passed. And the other thing I will say, and and I was very fortunate in that I tracked Tom Draper down about two years ago and sent him an email thanking him for the chance he took because it only, when I got much, much older, I realized what he had done for me and that he would have had a lot of flack by his peers. Um, But that um, it's, it's an experience I wouldn't, trade for anything in the world because it made me a better person. Too many people, and now I'm talking about white people, um, maybe to a lesser extent blacks as well, but because they don't get to really work within a situation, um, they don't really understand how racism works. And I'm not saying I totally understand it. I just, I know it's wrong. Mm. I know how it feels. And at the same time, if I go into a supermarket on the weekend, I'm not looked at funny if I have shorts on and a torn shirt, but a black lawyer could do the same thing. And they'd look at him as if he might be gonna rob the store. So I look at everything I did at Warner's, not only as being very fortunate in the music sense, but I now see myself as a far superior person than I would have been if I hadn't had that experience. Mm, okay. You, you, you have a funny moment, uh, but a very real one with you and Billy Sparks in the in, in your <laughs> car, car in the book. Yeah. And, and it's so funny because I was, I was in Minneapolis a couple months ago and that same type of situation, I mean, it, it wasn't, we weren't doing anything wrong or, or anybody, nobody was high <laughs> while right, driving, right, right. but it was, it was a contact it, high. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was a joke in the car and, 
uh, and we were, it was me and a couple other people and it was a couple white girls, and it was like, we were jokingly saying, yo, this could look funny to some police officer. Uh, so it was funny that even in 2017, Minneapolis, we still had that same sort of Well, unfortunately, Michael, 2017 in many parts of the country, not just Minneapolis, and especially with the way the tenure of the country right now, um, it's sad. It's wrong. Um, At the time that that particular situation happened, when I was with Billy, he was the one, as 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 pointed out in the book, that was telling me to calm down because I mean I was in this contact high and I'm trying to giggle and have a good time with the. this very blonde uh, uh, policeman who obviously was having an issue with uh, the two people that were in the car together. Um, and, and again, it, it took him. And then when we went and had dinner with some of the band afterwards for me to, and, and I, I very quickly lost my contact high because you know, when he sort of sat down, because he's always been a hugely good gauge for me and, and sitting, because I can ask him absolutely anything and he'll sit down and say, well, this is the way it really is and what have you. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it was a, a sobering moment, even though in its own context it was funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not funny. That's, that's I guess, you know, um, the yeah. circumstances were funny. Right. The, why it happened is, is not funny. For sure, yeah. There's, there's, it's sad but true is a lot of those types of situations yeah. that are like that. But um, to wrap things up, um, I don't want to ask you where you were at when you found out about Prince because I think that should be saved for what's in the book. But in terms of your time working with him mm-hmm. uh, through the years, what were some of the things that uh, you learned or picked up from that experience? You know, um, I learned not only from him, but from the people around him. Um, It's really hard to put it into a few words because they have all meant so much to me uh, throughout my life. Um, He had a huge influence on me. and not to say other artists didn't, it's just we, we had, I guess, what you might call a unique relationship. And because of who he was, and I hate using that word was, but um, that's fact. Um, you know, what did he do for me? I, I, I'd like to think we did for each other. Mm. You know, I mean, we, we, he, would, he would say things to me, many of which are in the book. Um, and, and I always felt, uh, it was okay for me to say things to him, you know, cause he'd ask me if I'd like something and I kind of look at him and I scrunch my nose and he'd laugh, you know, he's like, okay, you know, uh, um, but uh, I mean, that was, I had an opportunity at one point, I think, unless he was joking to go to work for him. And again, that's in the proverbial book, but uh, it was a very uh, definitive decision that, that I was much better off not working for him. I could be honest with him. Um, I couldn't keep up with him. I'll be honest. I, even when I was 20, I wouldn't have been able to keep up with the hours he keeps. I don't know how any of them didn't like pass out. Um, so it's a hard one. It's it just he's part of the fabric of my life. Mm. Wow, and so uh, you are in uh, Australia, is that right? Yes, I am. Now, uh, what brought you out 
brought you out from there? Well, I had an opportunity because of um, friends here, and I was burnt out. The industry was, it was, you really making that massive shift at that time, this 2001. Time Warner and AOL did this huge merger, which, you know, I won't even discuss that, but a lot of us were given the opportunity to leave with a, a, a substantial package, and it was clear that the direction of the company was going to be very different. Um, I, I was burned out. I had an opportunity to join various management firms, and I realized that I needed to take a step back. I had the opportunity to come here, and I thought, okay, I'll try this for a while and, and, and just see and find myself, as it were, because, you know, see what life after Warner Brothers is, because that's really all I ever knew. And now I'm doing... Um, uh, I've always been into photography, but I'm, I'm doing it very heavily now. I travel a lot. Um, I'm doing graphic design. I'm an approved designer for uh, Blurb out of the U.S. I'm the Australasia designer, so um, I design books. Uh, so I've sort of found, you know, um, a whole new lifestyle, uh, which is, I think, what needed to happen for me. Wow, okay. And um, when's the last time you've come back over to the States? Well, I keep saying I'm going to come. It's probably been seven or eight years, but every time I start to come, then I discover, ooh, there's a trip to Myanmar. There's a trip, well, like in, in um, next year, I'm going to the Arctic again. And so there's just Africa, where there's just so many other places. It's time, well, it's not so much time, it's, it's you know, finances. You can only do so many. And um, right now, I don't know if this is a good time to come to the U.S. Um, I, I like my friend that talked me into this book was just here for for a visit. I just put him on a plane a couple of days ago. Um, so uh, I have been able to stay in touch with the ones I really care about. And some of the artists have come down here and toured, and um, they reach out. And so, uh, like with Eric Leeds and stuff, I went down to Melbourne and ca- caught up with him, which was fabulous nice. so uh yeah um don't know when i'll be back at this point all right yeah no. it's a it's a little hectic over here as you can probably see it is <laughs> that would be a good word for it yes hectic mm. <laughs> yes we'll, we'll leave that one alone mm. exactly <laughs> all right well mary lou i so appreciate you sharing your stories with us uh it's an amazing book definitely it it shines another light another side uh, of Prince, and I love that uh, you, as a as a previous executive for Warner Brothers, stepped up and you know gives your uh, view on certain things, and we see it from another from another layer, uh, another side. So it's an excellent excellent thing. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, again, that is finally the reason why I decided to to move ahead with it because um, I just felt it was important that people see. Um, that side of him that was, you know, the shy, uh, uh, funny, oh my God, funny, geez, please, and the prankster and all of that. So um, it was an opportunity to do that. And it, it, it also is a cathartic thing for me. When I first wrote the book, um, I had thought that the ending would be his passing. But as I went through the book and, and recalled, I suddenly realized that there needed to be a final chapter and, and where the book is moments remembering Prince, the final chapter is moments remembering friends. Mm. And it's all about reconnecting with people and reaching out and what have you, um, which is what I've been doing 
well, very heavily since his passing. Um, a lot of us at PRN just scrambled to get to each other and, you know, emails, anything to sort of try to make sense of things. Um, so uh, uh, it sort of came full circle for me. Um, and at this point, for, for people that are asking, because uh, self-publishing is a, an interesting uh, venture, um, I'm still waiting for the book proof, which should arrive on Monday uh, to my editor uh, in the U.S. And um, fingers crossed that it will be okay. And we're still targeting December 14th. And I'm going through Ingram Distributors, which is uh, really the largest distributor in the world other than Amazon. And so at this point, I don't have um, exactly what stores will be carrying it, but I have hopes and plans that it will be everyone from Amazon on down and it will be worldwide. All right. Great, great. Yeah, definitely keep our eyes out. I'm, I am a, a, a digital guy myself, so as long as it's on that Kindle store, I will definitely... Uh, it will be on Kindle, but not right away. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So uh, it initially will be, in December, it will be available as a hardback and a trade paperback. All but right. it will be coming on ebook, just just not quite yet. Nice. All right. Well, we will definitely uh, put some links uh, to some uh, online stores. People can buy that and, and get the book and support it. Uh, again, Mary Lou, thank you so much. And, uh, Absolutely. And for anyone who wants to get constant updates, just go to Facebook and uh, type in Moments Remembering Prince because I'm constantly updating there and, and there's a link to my website there and all that. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm keeping everything up to date there. Nice. Perfect. Yeah, definitely. Go on there, Facebook and, and tell her thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Okay. That. Well, thank you, Michael, for your time. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.